You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. Well, good evening everyone to the very last in our series of Satisfaction 101. Although having said that, we've received such an encouraging response to these uh, online talks on satisfaction and all the various uh, strands that it's taken us into, whether it be singleness, contentment, and tonight thinking about grief. If you have a Bible there, please turn with me to Lamentations. It's not a book we turn to very often in the Old Testament, but Lamentations and chapter 3. And we're going to read the opening uh, 25, 30 verses or so. So please turn with me to Lamentations chapter 3, beginning to read at, at verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction. By the rod of his wrath, he has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He has made my skin and my flesh grow old. He has broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. He has walled me in so I cannot escape. He has weighed me down with chains even when I call out or cry for help. He shuts out my prayer. He has barred my way with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. Like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in hiding, he has dragged me from the path and mangled me and left me without help. He drew his bow and made me the target for his arrows. He pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. I became a laughing stock of all my people. They mocked me in song all day long. He has filled me with bitter herbs and sated me with gall. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has trampled me in the dust. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say, my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped for from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wondering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him. To the one who seeks him, it is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust. For there may yet be hope. Amen. This is God's word and we look forward to hearing what he has to say to us through this tonight. Grief. It's something every one of us will experience. And as we read and shared Meghan Markle's heartache after her article in the New York Times this week describing her emotions in response to her miscarriage that she experienced over the summer. Or maybe for some of us as we stand by the graveside of a family member or a friend. None of us is exempt from the kind of loss that makes us feel like we've been torn in half. For grief is associated with loss. The loss of a loved one through death. 
the loss of meaningful communication with an elderly relative as he or she declines rapidly with dementia, or those who are ill or weak sensing the loss of their own independence, the grief that accompanies childlessness, the loss when a marriage is strained or falls apart, or when a redundancy causes a loss of employment and our identity. Maybe it's even the death of a dream or the ending of a heart's desire. Grief is no stranger to any of us. And if you haven't experienced grief yet, someday you will. It's part of life and at times it can be all consuming. And I'm always intrigued about words and their underlying meanings. And the word bereaved is no different. To be reaved means to be raided or robbed. The word reaved is the old English word for plundered or stolen from, something taken forcibly from us. Something that was ours, now gone, that leads us then into that place of grief. And grief is not foreign to us, even as Christians. And yet how often there's an expectation we are just expected to snap out of it or oh, she'll get over it. Or time is that great healer. And there comes a time when those of us who have been through times of grief or significant loss sense that everyone has forgotten us and moved on regardless. But what does that feeling of grief, that deep aching sense of loss, remind us of? Well, it's nothing less than this. Something is not right with the world. Something is not right with the world. The reason that we hurt so much is that the good things that God created that were there to be enjoyed, all the very good things of Genesis chapters 1 and 2, can be spoiled, can be taken from us and even die, leaving us utterly bereft. That something meaningful, that something purposeful has been snatched away from us. Since sin entered the world, Genesis 3, the fall flung wide open the door to sadness. We can go through life tasting wonderful moments of glory, happy days that bring us great joy and smiles to our faces as even we leaf through an old photograph album or scroll through the gallery on our phones. But there will also be days when our hearts just feel like lead. You see, we were created by God to enjoy God and all that is good. We have this inbuilt sense that life has so much more to offer us because it was created by God and was meant to have gone on forever. And it shouldn't be littered with disappointments, let alone death. So when we say things like, it just doesn't seem right, or I can't believe this is happening to me, we are in effect expressing this frustration of life in a fallen world. If you want the snapshot in real life to expose this, Tell a two-year-old child that it's time to go home when she's been playing very happily with a friend and she throws an almighty tantrum because the fun is about to stop. The enjoyment is about to come to an end. And all of us know that when we experience loss, this isn't how it was meant to be. We are right to conclude that something is not right with the world and those good things we had snatched from us have an intrinsic value for they are God-made and God-given. Grief is that gut-wrenching expression that something is not right with the world. And so what are we to do? 
with these jarring moments of life, these unwelcome intruders, these raiders of our joy. Well, let me suggest that the Bible helps us in this, as first of all, we gain a reassurance that first of all, we do not need to hide our grief. We do not need to hide our grief. Death and loss are not natural, and we are right to reel and rage against them. And I think it's such an encouragement to us that God has devoted one whole book of the Bible to this very topic of uncontainable grief. It's a book that we rarely read, it's a book that we rarely preach from, and I would imagine it's a book that we rarely turn to because of the title. But God has been good, he's given us a whole book of lamentations in the Old Testament. Written by the prophet Jeremiah, it's a book of laments, deep cries to God from the heart, relating to heart-rending loss. It's a book that goes round and round in circles, recounting what was, what might have been, and then offloading all the angst of what Jerusalem has become, a desolate place full of loss and tears and bitterness and desertion. As pastor and author Colin Smith says, the grieving people of Lamentations couldn't stop crying either. They had endured disasters, one on top of the other. Their enemies had laid siege to the city. With no supplies entering the city, food became scarce and the struggle for survival became increasingly desperate. Then when the walls of Jerusalem were breached, the invading army came and occupied the city and God's people found themselves under the heel of a cruel oppressor. And finally, the temple where God's presence was said to have come down and dwelt was now completely destroyed. Lamentation is one great, long, agonised cry. People hurting for themselves and heartbroken for the community that they loved. And it's here, in our Bibles, for that very purpose, to help us, even encourage us, to make our grief known in two ways in particular, through tears and by talking. First of all, think about through tears. Somehow, somewhere in our culture, we began to equate tears with weakness. The Bible and our Saviour would disagree strongly. Through lamentations, the tears of God's people are not only shed, but they're actually recorded. There are at least five examples, but let me give you just two. Turn back to Lamentations chapter 1 and verse 16, where we read, This is why I weep and my eyes overflow with tears. No one is near to comfort me. A chapter further on, Lamentations 2 verse 11. My eyes feel from weeping. I am in torment within. You see, tears are a gift from God because they act as a release valve for our pain. So we are not to hold tears back. God gave us tear ducts for a reason. If you feel that tears are a sign of weakness, remember that Jesus wept. John records for us in that story of Jesus' visit to Mary and Martha after Lazarus' death. Jesus arrives after the funeral has taken place and he goes to where his friend is buried and there we read Jesus wept. And why did Jesus weep? Well, we know it wasn't because he wouldn't see Lazarus again or that Jesus had lost his hope and his resurrecting power because he was just about to raise him from the dead. Why did Jesus weep when he knew that there was a great outcome in store? It's because Lazarus was a friend, so cruelly taken from him. Jesus wept over what death had done. Weeping does not denote doubt. Weeping is the physical reaction to what is going on deep inside of us. 
In fact, God graciously reminds us in Psalm 56 verse 8 that he collects or records our tears in a bottle. It's like he, he's taking a note of them all. He expects us to see them. And he sees us. And he remembers us. And so as a church family, we also are to model this. We are to meant to be like God, hurting with those who hurt, weeping with those that weep, as Romans 12 verse 15 tells us. That genuinely reflects God's heart. How often I hear so many super spiritual people saying, don't be crying for me at my funeral. No, no tears when I die. I'm all right, you know. But in some ways, and I say this reverently, that's all very well for the person who's dying, who is slipping away. But it's the people who are left behind and feeling that sense of loss keenly who are cut to pieces. Tears reflect the pain of the soul. They are an expression of grief that God gave and God records and God displays in the person of Jesus Christ. And secondly, we can express grief by talking. That's what Lamentations does. It's not an easy read, but it does put thoughts into words. Colin Smith again. You see, grief builds in the soul like a steam in a boiler, and the pressure of grief that is not expressed can burst your heart. Imagine a priceless vase that falls to the floor and is smashed. The woman who loves it kneels down and picks up the pieces. She looks at each individual piece, holding even the smallest piece up to the light, and turning it around as she remembers where it once belonged. And that's what grief is like. A grieving person will often want to talk about the smallest minute detail that seems silly or insignificant detail of the loss, but it's important to them and that's what they remember. And we must be patient as they hold up each part of that memory before us. This whole book of the Bible which puts sorrow into words tells us something very important about how to grieve. We must put sorrow into words. Telling our story, talking it over with those people we trust, even writing it down. I think keeping a journal is important in this. It's a provision from God to help wounded souls. He gives us words. I read something really helpful this week that I want to commend to those who are going through different days of grief and sorrow and trauma. Take Psalm 40 or a similar psalm that expresses grief. And replace the I and my in those psalms with your name and begin to read it and pray it and cry over it and shout it and scream it if you feel the need to. Psalm 40, let me just use it as an example. David waited patiently for the Lord. He turned and heard David's cry. He lifted David out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set David's feet on a rock and gave it David a firm place to stand, and so on. Personalise it. Pray it. Say it. Shout it. The psalmist poured out their laments. And also Job in the Old Testament was not afraid to call out in his pain and life of suffering in the Old Testament. Whereas even our Lord Jesus cried out to God, his Father, in Gethsemane, at the cross pleading with him to remove the suffering he was about to face and then ask him where he was as he hung in agony at Calvary. Spoken rather than suppressed. Asking, questioning, crying out to God is to be encouraged. Asking God the why question actually displays faith, conviction and courage. 
because it directs the pain we have to the God who's in control. It recognises his sovereignty, his supremacy, and we are crying out to him in our pain, trusting that he hears. I wonder if you heard that in the realm of psychiatry, there's actually a therapy known as scream therapy, where a patient can go and do over a series of sessions or a weekend away, developing the art of screaming, letting out those inner feelings in a safe and controlled environment. Now, I'm not going to comment on that usefulness or success, but what I do know is that it's better to cry out, even in anger and pain to God, rather than scream in an empty room. The agonising why God is a cry of faith, not failure. A writer, Jessica Shaver, wrote these words in a poem called, I told God I was angry. I hope they're of help to you as they've helped me. I told God I was angry. I thought he'd be surprised. I thought I'd kept hostility quite cleverly disguised. I told the Lord I hate him. I told him that I hurt. I told him that he isn't fair, that he's treated me like dirt. I told God I was angry, but I'm the one surprised. What I have known all along, he said, you finally realised. At last you have admitted what's really in your heart. Dishonesty, not anger, was keeping us apart. And even when you hate me, I don't stop loving you. Before you can receive that, hope, that love, you must confess what's true. In telling me the anger you genuinely feel, it loses power over you, permitting you to heal. I told the Lord I was sorry, and he's forgiven me. The truth that I was angry has finally set me free. How can we move from the hurt and grievance we feel in our loss when something or someone has been taken from us? Well, first of all, we can do so through tears and then through talking, speaking to others and expressing to God what is on our heart. We're going to pause as we reflect upon that using the words of that lovely song by Laura Story. Blessings. The second thing that we want to note together tonight is that we do not grieve on our own. We do not grieve on our own. Colin Smith in his helpful book entitled For All Who Grieve writes this. One of the most striking things about lamentations is that the grieving person who says in chapter 3, I hope you've still got that open, chapter 3 verse 15, he has filled me with bitterness, also says in verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The same person who says in verse 16 of chapter 3, he has made my teeth grind on gravel, also says his mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. How can you in the same breath say in verse 32, though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love? The answer to that question all comes in the first verse of that chapter 3. Chapter 3 verse 1, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. Who is the man in question? Well the obvious answer is Jeremiah, the one who wrote this book, the prophet. He is the man. Jeremiah suffered much in his life and he's even been known since then as the weeping prophet because of everything he endured for God. But there's more here than the suffering of Jeremiah and the pain of God's people. 
after the fall of Jerusalem. There are whispers of Jesus all over Lamentations, but never more than in these verses that clearly anticipate the suffering that is to come. For the man, this man says in verse 17, my soul is bereft of peace, no peace. Is not what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, that his soul was overwhelmed with sorrow. There was no ounce of peace left in him as to what he was about to face at the cross. The man of Lamentation 3 in verse 14 says, I have become a laughing stock of all the peoples. And in the story of Jesus, the soldiers knelt before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! This man says in Lamentation 3 verse 2, He has driven and brought me into darkness, to the place without any light. As we are reminded as Jesus hung on the cross, darkness shrouded the whole land, even though it was midday. The man of Lamentation 3 verse 8 says, Though I call for help, he shuts out my prayer. And this was the experience of Jesus as he called, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How extraordinary that when Jesus was put on display before the crowd, with a crown of thorns upon his head, Pontius Pilate said in John 19 verse 5, Behold the man. I don't suppose he had any idea that in saying that, he was actually fulfilling the prophecy of Jeremiah, of rather Lamentation 3 verse 1 written by Jeremiah. The good news is that God became the man. Oh, I thank God for that. Do you not tonight? That God became the man. God became that man of sorrows. God became a man acquainted with grief. God became the one who was uniquely able to say, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. Lamentation 3 verse 1. You see, our core central belief at the heart of our Christian faith is of a God who says that he is always with us. How can he say that whenever we are suffering or torn apart by our grief? Well, in the dark, dark hole of the depths of despair is one who has been there for us and promises to walk alongside us. Isaiah 53 verse 3 tells us in a staggering depiction of the great Messiah King that the Jews were all anticipating that this is to come from a God. The God who came to release his people is described there not as a man of power, but as a man of sorrow and familiar with suffering. Familiar with suffering. Suffering is his thing, if you like. The Saviour is a fellow sufferer. Isaiah 53 prophesies Christ our Saviour from sin as one who plumbed the depths of our sorrow when he suffered at the cross. In him we have one who is ready and able to walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death. God made man is a grieved one and a griever. The son of man is a mourner. The Christ who now sits on the throne has been crushed by grief. He still bears the nail marks as evidence of that grief. If anyone that ever lived knew firsthand that things weren't right with the world, it's the one who created the world, but was crucified by the people of the world for the very sins and sufferings of this world. On the cross, Jesus took grief and loss to the unfathomable depths, such that the forsakenness he endured caused him to cry, Why? But what a blessing to us in our grief. 
It means that God isn't immune or indifferent to grief. He has experienced it at every possible level. The same God is with us in our grief. He doesn't always tell us why we're suffering, but he does offer us himself. It says in Lamentation 3 that the Lord is our portion. He gives himself as a great slice, if you like, to us. How beautiful is that? God has given us a grief-ridden and a weeping saviour. Did you hear that? That's the kind of saviour we've got. We can with full assurance say with the psalmist in Psalm 34 verse 18, the Lord is near to the broken hearted. This is the sweetness and sincerity of such a gracious saviour. So tonight we've learned we don't need to hide our grief. Secondly, we do not grieve on our own. And as we finish this series tonight, the third thing we are reminded of, there is life beyond death. You see, what I'm saying to you tonight, you don't need to suppress your grief. You don't need to hide your tears, but it does not need to bury us. Folks, that's the story of the Bible. Let me describe the whole of the Bible to us in just a few words. The creation of the world, very good. Fall into sin, very bad. Creator of the world enters our world, the very good amongst the very bad. The creator of the world is killed in our world. The very good is blotted out for the very bad. The creator of our world is raised to life in our world. The very good offers the very bad a return to the very good. That's the story of the Bible in just a few words, a few sentences. And Romans 8 verses 18 to 22 reminds us, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. And the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption as sons, the redemption of these bodies. Folks, our recovery is coming, but in the meantime, our world shares in this deep guttural groaning, awaiting something better. Reminding us that life on this earth falls miserably short of how it was meant to be and what it will become. The resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and his promised return empower us in this achingly painful world. For we read something staggering that we almost yawn our way through at funeral services, don't we? When it is read, Revelation 21 verse 4. Our God, our God, will wipe away every tear from your eyes. You see, he says the tears are real and we are allowed to weep, but one day there'll be no need. For he will personally, practically, lovingly wipe them out of our eyes individually, deliberately, slowly, eternally. To 
have this faith is our hope, our light in the depths. It's not an escape from reality, but as a gift that helps us face the sounding, maddening reality of a bereaved and broken world. Nancy Guthrie and her husband David both work in full-time Christian ministry and have a 30-year-old son, Matt, who works alongside them. They also have a daughter, Hope, and a son, Gabriel, who were born with a rare genetic disorder called Zellweger syndrome, but each of them only lived six months. Nancy has written extensively on suffering and disappointments in the Christian life, and any of her books or podcasts they can get your hands on, you will benefit from them. But she writes this, six words you can trust through tears. She says, recently I wrote a book on what to say to grieving people because when we speak to grieving people, our words really matter. But when we are the ones grieving, what is far more important than what other people say to us is what we are saying to ourselves. What we say to ourselves in between the sobs, when we have more questions than answers, when emptiness feels overwhelming, when anger is getting a foothold in our heart, when the grief is fresh and intense, we might take some wild ideas for a test drive in our minds, but to move toward healing and return to joy requires that we press into this one idea deeply, into our souls, until it begins to impact on the level of our feelings. What are these six words I hear you ask? I can trust God with this. I can trust God with this. These words have all kinds of implications that bring peace in the midst of grief's chaotic thoughts and emotions. The psalmist poured out his complaint to God in Psalm 42 verse five. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Rather than listening to his own desperate thoughts, the psalmist spoke truth to his heart. Rather than trusting his feelings, he challenged them. Rather than talking about the truth of the gospel as something out there for other people, he applied it to himself personally. Folks, the gospel isn't just for the unsaved out there. The gospel is for God's saved people and it's meant to impact us right down deep in here. Praying to God, he preached hope to himself. Friends, grief is something we will all face, but how will we handle it? Maybe we'll return to this talk and six months time or six years time and finally maybe it will mean something to you because you'll have been through that heartache as well but let me remind you we don't need to hide our grief we don't grieve on our own there is life beyond death and if god did not exist this is the only life that we get and death marks the end and it means that our loss then is permanent but if he does exist then death does not have the final say. Jesus has defeated it and one day he will remove it entirely. Won't you turn, turn to or return to him in faith and trust today, knowing that our gracious saviour is a fellow sufferer. Therefore, we can come to him in our suffering.
Let's take a moment to pray together. And as we do so, I'm going to use some words from a Puritan prayer that is so helpful called No Sorrow Like Yours. Let me just pause at home, close our eyes, make sure things are quiet, and let's make these words our own. There was no sorrow like your sorrow, Lord, no love like your love. Was it not enough, dearest Saviour, that you came down to pray and sigh and weep for us? Would you also bleed and, and die for us? Was it not enough that you were hated, slandered, blasphemed and buffeted, but you would also be scourged and nailed and wounded and crucified? Was it not enough to feel the cruelty of man? Would you also experience the wrath of God? And if your love was not enough, giving up your life and shedding that precious blood, was it not enough, Lord Jesus, to die once, to suffer one death? Would you die twice by tasting the first and something of the second death, suffering the pains of death in body and soul? Oh, the far surpassing love of Christ. Heaven and earth are astonished at it. What tongue can express it? What heart can conceive of it? The tongues and the thoughts of people and angels are far below it. Oh, the height and depth and breadth and length of the love of Christ. All creation knows not how to react. Our thoughts are all swallowed up, O oh God. And there they remain until glory elevates them when our job will be to praise and admire and adore the love of Christ our fellow sufferer, in whose name we pray.